0: Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all tonight. My name is Molly Rowan Leach, and I am your host for the ongoing telecouncil series Restorative Justice and Social Healing in the United States and Beyond. It's great to have you here and to be participating in this virtual circle. Uh, the purpose of, of this ongoing series really is to provide a platform for education poignant dialogue and resources and, and connections for these, these topics that are really um, quite pertinent in this moment in time, especially in our Western world. Um, we know that there's many things about our justice system and our criminal justice system that leave quite a bit of holes, um, the, and it, it's just a, a beautiful thing to be able to to talk honestly and openly about the fact that there's also a lot of solutions that are being outpictured even as we speak, not only in the United States, but worldwide. So again, a warm welcome to you all tonight. And before I introduce our very special guest tonight, I'd like to just set a few of the foundational um, invitations for, for the hour that we're here together. Um, please feel free to press 1 on your keypad at any time throughout tonight's call. If you have a question for our guest or you'd like to make a reflection, again, that's on your telephone keypad. Simply press 1. And that alerts me that you have something you'd like to share. I also would love to encourage you um, to visit the website for the Teleseries. And I also have created a Facebook page for the series in the same name As the series. So um, feel free to visit MollyRowanPresents.com to uh, unpack quite a few different archives, including um, recent archives from our our time together with Dominic Barter. And um, tonight's call, of course, will be posted there. And you just simply go to the column of the guest speakers to the original registration page to find those. So please do go back and check out all the great people that we've had, showers in, in the field of restorative justice, social healing, of justice, and beyond. So, without further ado, tonight's very special guest is, of course, Linda Alvarez. I'd like you to also um, just pay attention to, if you haven't already, checked out her website, which is DiscoveringAgreement.com, and um, she comes from a very, very deep background. Uh, in 1997, earned her uh, her degree in law, and has also had uh, a performing arts background. She was one of the the foremost um, representatives in in the mid 1990s. She actually, or excuse me, in the um, uh, let's see, it was it was later, I believe, in the 2000s that she was at the leading edge uh, of the di- digital technology business, um, the boundary, pushing the boundaries of legal concepts designed for the analog and print-based era. Um, Linda has a really amazing take on how to set up um, structures before conflict arises, Um, and I'll let her share more with us about what that means and what discovering agreement means, and before I welcome her with all of my heart, I just want to say that she is also um, just one one of my favorite people as far as as being someone within the system um, and really shedding a lot of light from within. And I know that that's not not necessarily a, a small task, so I just want to acknowledge her and honor her for all the work that she's doing within the legal system as an attorney. Very war- warm welcome to you, Linda, tonight.
1: Thank you, Molly. My goodness. <laughs> I'm intimidated by my introduction. <laughs>
0: Oh, please don't be. And and I'd, I'd I'd love to just start out, if you wouldn't mind, by uh, sharing with us all um, perhaps a vignette of your path and what has inspired you to to um, maybe also kind of weave in about what discovering agreement means and your unique kind of take on um, on what you, you know how you see setting up structures before. Conflict arises, and how that applies within, you know, within your legal practice. But maybe start from the beginning <laughs> right. and lead into that. That's a
1: biggie. So that is that's a lot. There. That's a lot there to talk about. Um, so you mentioned that I started in in the performing arts. My husband and I were theater producers uh, at the outset. Of my career as a you know an adult, um, And then, through just becoming weary of the gypsy life and also weary of the sort of chicken today feathers tomorrow, nature of the theatrical world, um, we made a shift, and I decided to uh, take up another profession and ended up. Almost well, actually, on a dare, taking a a law school exam, my dad dared me. I was on my way to get a PhD in theater, and uh, he dared me to take a law school exam. And my score was way better than anybody ever expected, including myself. And uh, my uh, (laughs) my counselor told me that I probably should go ahead and be a lawyer rather than (laughs) a theater. (laughs) Because <laughs> she was concerned about my <laughs> ability to earn a living, so that's where I ended up starting in the law. Um, so I found myself in law school without any real idea of what I was getting into, and uh, they They warn you at the beginning of law school. Professors, almost all of them would say, you know, you're going to be changed. This is going to be hard on your spouse. This is going to be you be a different person when you come out. All this kind of stuff, you know. And I thought that's really odd. Um, and then one day, something happened in class that I will never forget, and I think I'm really grateful. This was uh, a professor of ours was teaching real property, which is about the, you know, purchase and sale of land. And we were discussing a case, and he asked the question was that the right outcome? And somebody in the class raised their hand and was called on and said, yes, you know, because the law says this and the law says that and because the contract said this and because the party A did that, therefore, the, that was the, the right outcome that the court came up with. And at that point, the professor said, congratulations, you're warped. I didn't ask you if that was the correct legal outcome. I asked you if it was right and just hearing that really stopped me dead in my track because I realized I had been right there with them on equating right with the correct legal system outcome and I was so grateful to that professor for pointing out that blind spot, Um, but (laughs) that set me up then to be watching from then on uh, for where the system was letting us down, for where the system was uh, maybe not serving the way that matched my personal values. so I went on and began practicing law in the big law firms. As you say, it wasn't so much me as my clients who were on the cutting edge of the uh, development of technology, digital technology. You know, I mean, in 1992, very few of us were using computers, and by 2001, they were ubiquitous, and there was a whole world of digital content flow going on. So I was there serving clients, right in the middle of all of that. And at the same time, you know, I was succeeding. There was lots of litigation. It was very exciting. But it just wasn't... It seemed that the way we were dealing with disagreement, conflict, uh, just was more destructive than productive. Uh, and I didn't enjoy the combative, adversarial, competitive uh, posturing that was required to be a good, in quotes, lawyer, um, but that was what was required. That was what my professional responsibility rules told me was needed. And so forward through the fog. Um, and then, <laughs> in 2001, 9/11 happened. And. Uh, I had a lot of rethinking to do. I realized how unhappy I was as an attorney uh, performing as a, the very best paranoid bully I could be and uh, wondered if that was how I wanted to live and that was where I wanted to be. when. I died because, you know, I thought of all those people in the tower dying in their offices. Were they doing what they wanted to do? And at the same time, I also was really distressed by what looked to me like an unproductive response um, to that event by the United States. It seemed to me that the military response was creating more problems than it was solving. Um, But I could see that a powerful response was needed. And... um, I got real curious about nonviolence and started to study it, seriously study it, just on my own. Um, I looked at at Gandhi because I knew that Gandhi was contemporaneous with Hitler and I wanted to know what he said about that kind of evil and about a nonviolent response to that kind of evil that led me to really years of studying. nonviolence and the and the determination to practice nonviolence in my life as a way of engaging conflict in a new way. But I couldn't ever bring it I couldn't ever really bring it into my practice of law, um, because it just didn't seem to be a way to bring it together. So I actually thought I was gonna leave the law. I intended to quit the law and uh Ended up quitting my job um, and just kind of running a solo practice a little bit on my own, and continuing to study nonviolent practices, nonviolent communication, nonviolent you know restorative justice. I, I began to uh, train and took workshops and classes with Dominic Barter, who you've had speak here on the Telecouncil before. And really was beginning to see the different kind of power that was um, inherent in these alternative approaches that were different from dominating and winning and finding advantage, um, which is how our conventional paradigm Um, works. All of that was sort of running around, and I had quit my job, and I was just doing a little bit of stuff. And I decided to be, uh, I accepted a job as a business manager for uh, an author for John O'Donohue, an Irish author, poet, and teacher. And um, just figured I was moving in another direction, and had worked for him for six months when he suddenly and quite unexpectedly passed away at the age of 52. He died in his sleep. Um, And John was just a magnificent person, um, a real light on the earth. And in the aftermath of his unexpected death, as I sat in the chair of business manager, it became evident that John had had a lot of informal business relationships that he managed by the force of his personality, which was absolutely wonderful. But now John was no longer there to manage the relationships. And some of the people with whom he had been working were beginning to take actions that they assured me John would have wanted them to take, and they assured me John would have wanted them to have all the money from. Um, And it was my responsibility to steward the rights and take care of his business and preserve what I could for the family. At the same time, part of preserving what there was in John's literary legacy was preserving these relationships. So I needed to have a powerful way to protect the rights, and at the same time, a way not to destroy, but to strengthen the relationships that were there and that were going to be needed for the future of Joan's work, and it was at that, in that crucible that the practice of discovering agreement developed for me and it came out of finding a way to have a conversation that aligned the parties so that they could see that they had shared values and so yeah. that they would orient side by side instead of toe to toe and work together on a solution that would serve everyone. And then because we were working in the context of business, we needed to be able to put that into a contractual document in a way that it would sustain itself by virtue of the words in the document. So that's kind of the path. I hope that wasn't too Mm. complicated.
0: That's a powerful story, Linda. (laughs) <laughs> and John uh, O'Donohue, of course, uh, I, I'm looking at a copy of his book, Anamkara, right now, as as we're sharing, and um, it's on my desk. Um, but I, I don't believe that I had heard you share that story before, that that yeah. was the, the seed of discovering agreement. Um, bless his, his spirit.
1: Amen.
0: Um, and... And so, Linda, um, there's been quite a few people arriving, and I just want to pause again and welcome those of you who have, have just been arriving since we started. I wanted to invite everyone tonight to please be aware that it's an open line as far as uh, if you'd like to ask Linda a question or make a reflection or comment of any kind, um, just please press one on your keypad, on your telephone keypad tonight, throughout tonight's call. We're together until the top of the hour, so um, welcome everybody that's just arrived. So, L- Linda, you, you shared something really uh, wonderful with me, and I'd like to share it with everyone tonight. Um, as far as, as giving a definitive kind of description of what re- uh, excuse me, what discovering agreement is, and what it, it may not be. Um, <laughs> so, I'd just like to read what what you shared if I may, uh, we sure. say Dominic Barter, of course, of Restorative Circles, and he also is a former guest on this, t- uh, on this particular series, talks about the importance of having a restorative system in place in the community before the conflict arises, one that the community knows is there and can easily access and participate in when they are experiencing stressful or painful conflict. People often imagine that discovering agreement is about dispute resolution, but that is not really the active focus of discovering agreement. We try to enter the conversation upstream of the conflict, helping parties who are creating contractual relationships calibrate their alignment, clarify their shared purpose and values, and set up their own ideal systems for addressing change and engaging conflict as needed in the future, So in a nutshell, the focus of Discovering Agreement is to design mutually satisfactory business relationships and enterprises, including setting up systems for meeting crisis creatively and productively. So that is a profound summation of what you've just been describing, Um, and I love how you say we try to enter the conversation upstream of the conflict, and so I'm wondering if if you might um, share with us. Let's just say you have. Uh, how, how do you start? How does it start out for you with, with your with your people, with your clients, especially if there's you know some some clients or uh, the people that are a part of the situation that may not necessarily be open to. Um, to this this approach? How does it
1: start? Um, well, the the fact is that my practice, we're, we're coming at this from the fact that I'm an attorney and my interface with people is as an attorney um, in, in this discovery agreement context. I am, my practice is transactional. I'm not a litigator and I'm not a mediator. I'm not a person, an attorney whose practice it is to deal with conflict, rather I'm there when parties want to do a deal. When they are in a transaction or when they're creating a business or when they're creating some other kind of relationship and they want a contract. Um, And so generally, that is the point at which the parties are still in love they're still in love with at least the idea of their future together. And that is the point at which many times uh, lawyers have the reputation of coming in and wrecking things, because we're trained as attorneys to see the bargaining table as an opposition, as an adversarial process. We represent our client in a deal against the other side. That is literally the language that is used. Um, So you can see how people who are trying to do a deal find it confusing. If the attorneys come in and start doing this competitive, adversarial, pessimistic, um, predict all the rotten things that could happen and try to get the best protection for yourself and put everything off onto the other guy. And how that can actually end up with a relationship beginning with someone feeling they've won and someone feeling they've lost. And none of us likes that feeling. Uh, It's human nature, actually, to want to even the score. There have been uh, neuroscience, neurological experiments in the field of neuroscience where they've discovered that people would generally rather take nothing than accept a deal that would give them something but the other guy an unfair amount larger. in, in, in specifically that is they they give one person a chunk of money, or say they're giving them you know, theoretically a chunk of money, and they, this person A, can offer person B a certain amount of the money. Person B has to accept in order for either of them to actually get the money. So no matter what is offered to person B, he's going to be better off if he accepts, right? If it's $1 out of 50 or if it's $25 out of $50, he's still ahead. But they've discovered that person B will reject the deal before he will allow something less than about 50% to be given to him. So he would rather have nothing than have an uneven score. So you can see how, in the sense of a bargain or a business, if somebody comes out of the initial contract negotiations, signing an agreement that they've conceded to terms and they feel like they've been screwed, how does that bode well for the relationship? Pretty much typical. So my approach how discovery and how discovering agreement enters the conversation is that I talk to my client. Usually, my client comes to me because now because I'm this kind of um, perspective offer, but the client and I talk about what their reason for wanting to do the deal. What is the reason that they do anything they do? I want to know my client's vision. I want to know what they think the mission of this agreement is, why it's better to do this deal with this party rather than without them or with a different party. And I want to know my client's values. What are the keys to satisfaction for that client in a business relationship, in life in general? They're just, you know, how should people behave, values, all of that. And then, once I know what that is for the client, we ask the other side, what are your vision, mission, and values for this business relationship and endeavor? Now, we don't have to tell them that we're doing some kind of new process some kind of DISCOVERING agreement thing we just say generally what happens is my client will send the other side the other parties a uh, a note an email or or talk to them and say this is my vision mission and values this is what I think this relationship and endeavor is about what it's for and this is what's important to me and just getting along what what are yours what 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 do you think Then the other side will either respond or not respond. Often, they don't respond. We get nothing back. At which point, my client and I will guess at what their vision, mission, and values must be, what we can derive from reading their materials, from our conversations with them, you know, what might those be. Then we put into the contract, when we're writing it, the vision, mission, and values, of the parties for this endeavor. So that they have clarified up front what it is that's the basis for their go- for all of the conversations and all of the interactions. Then we move to the part of the agreement which normally will have some kind of dispute resolution provision. And you'll see typically in a legal document something like an arbitration clause. Um, or something similar. And arbitration is just like litigation, except that it's unappealable, basically. And it's a private judge instead of a public judge. Um, So we generally take out the arbitration clause. And this is where we do what Dominic talks about. And we insert a system, design a system for the parties so that they can have a conversation that is productive and creative in in whenever they find themselves in crisis. Either it's change or they're in disagreement or something is happening. Instead of saying, if we find ourselves in conflict, we're going to court, we're going to arbitration, we're going to look at our contract and see who has the biggest hammer to hit the other guy with. We've taken that out of the agreement and instead put in a restorative system of the party's own design. And we the, that may with, I, may yeah.
0: I interrupt you here? Because sure. uh, I'd like to earmark that and ask you if you might unpack that a little bit more with any examples. Um, are, are there key elements that seem common and, and um, kind of across the board that are a part of of, of these systems that then are put into place?
1: You know, each, each, to each his own, Um, much like each community, you know, how you, I don't know if you recall Dominic talking about this, but he talks about, you know, the first question is how do we already engage conflict? What about that works and what about that doesn't work? And what would we like to do instead, if anything? Um, it's very simple. It can be quite simple in the context of a contract because people are familiar with mediation and it's easy to say, you know, let's put a mediation clause in here and let's agree with this kind of mediation. And what actually is key for me is that because what we're talking about is a, is a contract, is writing it up, um, is that this restorative system, this operational conversational procedure portion is linked to the vision, mission, and values. It says, this is how we're going to let each other know that there's a tension that needs to be resolved. This is how we identify the topic we're going to talk about. This is what timing, this is you know how we're going to have the conversation, and the conversation is going to focus on bringing us back into alignment with our stated and declared vision and mission in accordance with our stated and declared values. What that does is when you're in the moment and you're upset because you can't believe the other guy did that stupid thing that they did, that you come to this conversation and you say, This is the stupid thing I want to talk about, or this is the problem I'm having that doesn't seem to be make any sense to me. And the parties then have to look at, well, okay, that's the problem. How is that a problem in the context of our stated vision, mission and values of this endeavor? of what it is we mean to do. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because it subverts this meaning or this mission or this part of the mission. Okay then, what can we do that'll fix it? And you see how now they're not toe-to-toe. They're not saying you did this and you did that and you should have and I should have and it should have. It becomes, wow, okay, here's the two of us looking at our vision, mission, and values again, looking at our situation, the one we find ourselves in, and then designing together our solution to it, navigating in accordance with this vision, mission, and values that we established early on, and deciding if those are still our vision, mission, and values. I mean, that can be as valid a place to start as anything, because it may be that the conversation is, we need to take this endeavor apart. But it's so much more likely to be a productive conversation if the document that guides the conversation orients them side by side and sort of requires them to sit and look together towards a third idea within a context. Does that, does that answer what you were mm-hmm.
0: asking? Mhm. Very much so. And it feels powerful to me too to have a document in place, um, kind of like it brings it down to earth a little bit more so that you know, not only the fact that that uh, the parties are working together towards what they're, you know, towards finding a shared uh, mission and vision and purpose, but but also can can refer back to that and also have the latitude, like you're saying, to um, re-up it and look at it and see if it's still meaningful over time, and 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 have that kind of that check-in. Um, yeah, and I exactly. appreciate. Yeah, and and it and it, it's so amazing to me how simple this all seems, too. You know, and and, I mean, <laughs> and how um how probably you know. I mean, I remember in speaking, of course, with Dominic, how how beautifully simple this all seems and intuitive too. And one of one of the guests that um I'm I'm Delighted to be hosting next week. Kate Pranas was was sharing with me um, something really beautiful about how we already have it within us. We all already have this paradigm within us,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, and to tap into that and bring it forward,
2: uh, it, it's it's
0: a beautiful thing to to have it out picturing in in systemic. Practices like what you're doing, um,
1: but it's no easy no easy shot, even though it is well, inherent you do you do meet with resistance, um, and that's you know it's always a learning thing what what one of the principles of nonviolence is, as I understand it, is that no one is forced to do something they don't want to do. And we generally look at our contract as being used to force people to do things they don't want to do, and mm-hmm. our legal system for the same purposes. So it's really hard for people to trust that this kind of approach is safe. Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and what seen. I generally, yeah, when people ask me is it safe to do a contract this way, my response generally is, do you think that the conventional way is safe?
0: Mm
1: Mm-hmm. How safe is that? And Mm -hmm. let me just say that the conventional mm, process and paradigm put all of the power for resolving dispute and for determining what the future behaviors will be. It puts all that power into... THE SYSTEM INTO THE THIRD PARTY THAT IS A GOVERNMENTAL SYSTEM SET UP TO PERPETUATE ITSELF mm-hmm. and, to be, AND TO BE CONSISTENT mm-hmm. WITH ITSELF. Mm-hmm. When, WHEN YOU CREATE YOUR OWN SYSTEM, YOUR OWN OPERATIONAL CONVERSATIONAL PROCEDURE FOR DEALING WITH STRESSFUL CONFLICT OR CRISIS OR CHANGE within a contract, if you make your own, and it's not, you know, for some reason illegal, like you can't beat each other up, but if you have your own way of having your conversation, then you retain the power. The parties retain the power to make their own decisions about what they want to happen next. And they're guided by decisions that they made when their minds were Calmer, and their hearts were not aflame mm-hmm. with fear. All
0: right. With, um, with the, system, the conventional system certainly has not um, provided an environment for there to be <laughs> a, a sense of peace walking into, um, <laughs> uh, a, uh, you know, a, a possible conflict transformation
2: uh, oh, or a,
0: you know court cases. So. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to pause here for a moment, and uh, we actually have some hands up. I'd like to at least uh, right. open it up to Nancy.
2: Nancy, you're live. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Hi. This is really fascinating. Um, and it, and um, uh, early on, Linda, you had said that you, you, um, you used a phrase that really created a... Um, uh, an image for me, and that was shared boundaries uh, and and so as I, I when you started off and then and then of course you 've moved into your to, to this paradigm of vision, mission, and values how how do you um, define shared boundaries and relate it back to uh the fundamentals of of an agreement the way you describe it? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I think probably that's um, a problem with the microphone because I said shared values. Um, And I suppose those could be seen as shared boundaries, but I think the really important word is shared.
2: I see. Um, All right. I heard boundaries. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Shared um, because generally when uh, a lawyer gets a call from a client, and the client says, I need an agreement, I need a licensing agreement, or I need uh, some kind of rental agreement, or I need a transaction agreement. They need some kind of agreement. And then they'll tell the lawyer, here's the deal points. You know, I'm going to have, he's going to pay me this much, I'm going to deliver this product, I'm going to deliver it at this time, he has this much time before he has to reject it, and then and th- those are the deal points, write me up an agreement. And with discovering agreements, we start in a very different place. we start with why do you want to do this deal what is it you're in business to achieve what is the mission of this deal and what are your keys to satisfaction in having a relationship with a vendor a, you know whoever's on the other side and then we explore what the other side's vision mission and values are you know or whatever we want to call them purpose intent keys to satisfaction then those parties in have talk to each other about why they're in business, about why they want to be in business with each other, and about what's important about how people ought to act with each other. So they are starting from having a relationship. And Then the next thing they do is talk about how they're going to operate when they find themselves in disagreement or if there's a crisis, how they're going to have that conversation, They've tied it to their vision, mission and values. They know who they are, they know why they're there, they know how they're going to deal with conflict, and the deal point then, just become the action plan for how they're going to achieve what they want to achieve together.
2: Do you: help, Instead,
1: excuse go ahead.
2: Me. Yeah, do you believe uh, that you help form that relationship, or do you help uncover it?
1: That's why I call it discovering agreement. It's because it's a conversation where they explore and discover where they're in agreement.
2: So that you do not necessarily have to come across as a a coach or a counselor.
1: I try never to be that.
2: I see. Thank you. Exactly.
1: This is this is theirs. As far as I'm concerned, it's all about them retaining the power over their own plan, their own lives and their forward-moving relationship.
0: Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. And um, I just want to, again, remind everyone that for the remaining the, the, the remaining time tonight, if you do have a comment or a question or an insight you'd like to offer into the circle, just press one on your keypad. Uh, on your telephone keypad, that is. And um, I'd like to also bring up uh, a question that was submitted by a registrant uh, pre-telecounsel. Pam asked, Linda, um, she she says, I would have liked to have used these ideas during my husband's divorce case with his ex-wife. How -hmm. can you use these techniques with someone who is so bitter that they would rather cost themselves more money then settle in a way that benefits everyone.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's really tough and I, there's two things that kind of come up for me with that question. The first is when someone is in a mindset where it seems like all they want to do is cause the other side pain, my experience is that that is someone who is in a lot of pain and is trying to communicate that pain by making the other feel an equal amount. And that the only way I've ever found to deal with that is to step out of the resisting response to the pain and just start listening and reflecting what I hear coming from that person, what they're telling, what their message is about the kind of pain they're in. And that's on one level, right? So basically, I would say what that person needs is empathy. They need to be heard about what is the problem, why are they in so much pain, what is the the value that they're holding on to that isn't being served in the moment. And once they feel heard, oftentimes they can let go of it a little bit enough to begin to see that you're not trying to take away from them anything more or destroy their ability to have that value, but that you might be looking at another, um, another way to meet that value that doesn't also harm you. Um, this is all part of that restorative process. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the, the part that discovery agreement has there, um, it's again before the conflict arises. If the system's in place, then you are much more likely to be able to have a restorative conversation than you are coming into the middle of the conflict and trying to reorient everyone away from their conditioned response while they're also at their most heightened emotional state. However, there are mediation um, processes that I'm aware of that are have been successful in that way. Um, the collaborative law model for divorce often is helpful in that. And also, uh, the mediation that Gary Friedman does uh, Center for Understanding and Conflict, I think, um, operates from, you know, starting the conversation with let's, get, let's understand what everybody's interests are and once we understand what everybody's interests are, then we can work together to see that everyone's interests are served. Um, it, it takes that sort of empathy step to relieve some of that tension and stress and to then, again, reorient the parties out of the combative, competitive, and into the Mm side-by-side problem-solving. So, and then once an agreement is then reached as a result of a mediation, it would be appropriate because you have discovered where you're in agreement in that point, and you have been through a process. Of a conversation for creatively and productively addressing the conflict, then to go ahead and incorporate those things into the actual written document, so that it's not just your set of deal points, but that it serves as a handbook going forward for when you're gonna, you know, when things change and you need to take another look at the plan.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, and if the, it. it the, the need to be safe and to know that it's safe to step into practices that certainly in, in, in our Western world and in um, the United States, uh, it's very clear that there's a, a, a exponential emergence of restorative justice, restorative circle practices. Um, what I've noticed is that, and, and I hear this really deeply in your work, is um the the power of utilizing these practices and clothing them in language and and practices that aren't too far off from what has come before um, in order to sort of bridge from an old paradigm, an old way of doing things, a punitive way of looking at things, a litigatory-centric sort of Way of being, or raison d'etre, <laughs> in, in the in the legal system. <laughs>
1: um, we have to so re-understand. Really, we have to re-understand re-under- yeah, no, what, what power is. Um, mm. We we're trained. We really do believe, generally, that power um, means well. It means having control over what's going to happen to us and. As illusory as that can be, you know, Mm. still we struggle to be in control and we understand being in control as meaning that we are able to cause other people to behave in the ways we choose. Mm. Um, And that is, that's really our, it's my experience that that's what people generally are after when they are talking about power. In any context, and what nonviolent—the study of nonviolence—taught me, and what just watching restorative circles, experiencing the process of these kinds of side-by-side conversations, is that there's a greater power, because the the win-lose, dominate, submit power idea has. A destructive effect, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. where
1: if what you're doing is looking at what that person wants and needs and values, what I want and need and value, and how we can come together to find a way to get everything we want, that in a in a safe THEN WHAT WE'RE DOING IS WE'RE GENERATING POWER TOGETHER. WE'RE
0: Mm. GENERATING
1: AND PRODUCING AND WE'RE FAR MORE CREATIVE. Um, SO FOR ME, IT'S REALLY ALL ABOUT RETHINKING THAT that GUT UNDERSTANDING OF POWER.
0: It reminds me a bit of uh, on, on the Teller Council series for Evolutionary Lawyers that you were also a special guest on, Linda. Um, Rianne Eisler was also on that series that I co-hosted with Kim Wright. And it always seems to come back to this shift in our consciousness, this shift. Uh, if we really go to the, the depths of, of what, what we're in the midst of right now, it seems to really be I mean, it clearly is a very powerful time to be alive, um, and we have such opportunity right now, um, and it's an honor to be walking uh, and serving towards uh, a world that, that really does work for all, and restorative justice seems to me to not, um, to not leave gaping wounds, um, whereas punitive justice, uh, leaves wounds uh, present in uh, not only the, the victim, but, you know, the perpetrator and the community. Um,
2: exactly. Uh, it
1: sows the seeds of, sorry. yeah, it perpetuates itself. That uh-huh. retributive justice is violent, and violence perpetuates itself. Um, because there's always, it plants the seed for someone to, try to even the score or try to get their pain heard in a way that, you know, causes the other, you know, we understand justice as the other guy hurts as bad as I hurt. Um, And the restorative model looks at how can we actually heal the situation so that we haven't left any seeds of violence or hatred or this this need to get even or pain yet to be heard that needs to be you know escalated into um, causing another by pain, it's finding a way to really end the cycle mm. in, a, in a in a strong way mhm, mhm.
0: It seems to me to be a planting of new seeds as well um, for future generations. And like you were saying, it's 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 a it's we we're generating something together, and probably getting very surprised along the way too. Um, at how how powerful this uh, this is to put the restorative practices into motion. And it's it's also interesting, and I'm I'm curious what you might have seen or what you're seeing um, in working within the legal system, um, what, are your, what insights and news do you have perhaps to share with us about what you've seen happening? Um, you know, I, know, I know you mentioned collaborative law and I know that there's a group of, of lawyers called the Holistic Lawyers. Um, but what about in the court systems and you know the and judges, DAs, public defenders are are they are they employing restorative practices and and if so, do you have any examples or news that you'd like oh, to share? Oh wow!
1: Well, there's you know there are so many examples and I'm not really an expert in any of them. Um, there are courts that are developed now, developing now. Um, Judge Hora H O R A, I think is how you spell her name. We heard her speak about, yeah, about um, these problem-solving courts where rather than where we take an offender for lack of a better word because that's what they call it in the system, someone who's come before the judge and the judge can see that, you know, the typical sentence is just going to create more problems for the person before her for the community at large, um, you know, and it won't resolve the victim's needs or concerns. And the the court is able to create uh, new ways of dealing with um, what the community needs, what the person who has done whatever action is a problem, and what the victim needs. Um, you know, what I also know is that i, I last year went to the uh, a conference held in Oakland, or Berkeley, uh, about mindfulness in the law, and it was a gathering of legal professionals who practice meditation, have a mindfulness practice, and yeah. how they incorporate it, into, incorporate it into their work, and there were, I think there were two or three federal court judges there who uh, were willing to stand in front of a group of people and admit to being meditators. (laughs) I have to say that's appropriate. Yeah, Um, yeah, they're beginning to teach mindfulness practices. Uh, Judy Cohen here at the Golden Gate uh, University School of Law is teaching a course in mindfulness to the law students there. There are programs in Florida. There are programs in Berkeley. There are programs. I think um, the law school up in New York has a, uh, I know that one time at least, they had a track for their law students to take to be a contemplative uh, study course, that they were studying Templative practices alongside the law in getting their uh, jurist doctorate. So, uh, you know, the people within the legal system who are working in it know it's broken. They know mm-hmm. it's broken. They mm-hmm. live and work in it, and they That's are right. heart, heart sick about it. But they don't have so many alternatives, or they haven't had in the past alternatives that they knew they could put their weight on. So, having people like Dominic Barter and Kay Prattis who are out there creating alternatives, practicing the alternatives, demonstrating the efficacy of the alternatives, and hopefully discovering an agreement by the same token, this demonstrates to the people within the system that there is an alternative that is viable,
2: mm-hmm. That they
1: that by choosing an alternative, they are not at risk, but they are actually, they can show by track record, this is a better way to do things, this is a safe way to do things, mm-hmm. and we're far more likely to be able to migrate to a new way, um, but it takes these pioneers and it takes their mm-hmm. willingness to uh, just go ahead and do it on their own, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's just, it, it's, that's what I'm seeing is there, like you said, there begins to be some momentum,
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm, certainly is and and um, that that piece of of just diving in um, when when something happens in your community locally or, or even within your immediate community as a you know as an extended family or as a household um, these are uh, there's multiple opportunities. Happening every moment and every day, for us to dive in and engage in nonviolent practices and restorative practices, and it's amazing um, what can happen when we just simply make a commitment to, you know, to starting a circle in our community. Like I, I know here in in Preston, we've done that uh, around a violent crime that happened, and um, there's at least 30 to 40 people coming almost on a weekly basis um, in response to the crime itself. And uh, it, it's very powerful for for us, and we can make a change um, by simply committing to diving in and being present in this way. I truly believe that. And I really thank you so much, Linda, for, for being with us tonight and for... Um, for all that you are and do in the world, and the models and the pioneering that you you are uh, way showing. Um, and I just, I'd like to invite you, do you have any, any comments that you'd like to close with tonight for the circle? Oh,
1: yeah. I always like to give a little bit of John at the end of the conversation. Mm, you ready?
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. There's,
1: Here's a stanza from one of his blessings. May my mind come alive today to the invisible geography that invites me to new frontiers, to break the dead shell of yesterday, to risk being disturbed and changed. May I have the courage today to live the life that I would love, To postpone my dreams no longer, but do at last what I came here for, and waste my heart on fear no more.
2: Thank
0: you so much for that. Yeah, words (laughs) do not suffice for that. I just want to hold on to that and not even say anything further. Um, And alas, I must in thanking everyone for your presence tonight with Linda and encouraging you again to to visit her at discoveringagreement.com and also to visit mollyrowanpresents.com to discover the audio archive from tonight's circle and of course all of this telecouncil series and the archives are free. Um, The audio of the archives is streaming online from uh, tonight's call and from other calls in the past. This is a telecouncil series that has actually been going on since last year and I'm simply honored and delighted and excited at what we do here together. Um, and I'd cordially invite you to join me next week as I host the amazing K Pranus. And uh, that's same time, same place. You do need to register again for that. Um, and also in the near future, we'll be talking with Dot Maver, um, Jeffrey Feinberg, and uh, Hart Phoenix from the River Phoenix Center for Peace Building, as well as Libby Hoffman from FAMBL Talk and um, catalyst for Peace. Amber Talk is a very powerful film, and I'm so excited that she'll be joining us. That's next month. But keep, keep, up, keep posted with us, and again, Linda, thank you so much for everything. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a wonderful evening, everyone, and thank you.